you would, turn to the book of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk, it's right after Nahum. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, you probably know where Nahum is, right? It's like five books backwards. If you haven't found it, it, it's like five books backwards from Matthew. I think it's five, seven, something like that. It's, It's what we call one of the minor prophets. If you don't know... The, we we have the prophets in the Old Testament separated by what we call the major prophets and the minor prophets. And that sounds like it, it, it one is more important than the others, and that's not the case at all. The, the only reason they're called the major prophets and the minor prophets are the size of the books. That's, that's it. So this is one of the minor prophets, which means it's a small book. There's only three chapters, and when I first started studying this, I, and I've gotten to know Habakkuk a little bit, the man, by reading the writing, I, when I first started studying, I thought, well, this isn't going to work. I can preach this whole book in one sermon. And as I kept studying and continued to study and read the book and read the book, and we're going to try to get through five verses today. So that's how it changes. Okay, the Word of God, there is, you can, we cannot exhaust it. Okay, it is deep, and it is powerful. And so as we look at it, I hope God speaks to us through this. As we heard this morning in Equipping Hour, God speaks through his word. And he can speak directly to you. We have available the word of God. And as this comes, I pray that he would speak directly to you and I um, in these words. Before we get into the actual text, we'll give just a little bit of introduction, um, a little bit of historical background of what's going on. There's very little known about the prophet Habakkuk. There's not really anyone, um, there's not a lot of mention of him anywhere else in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's anywhere where he's mentioned other than in this book. So there's, and historically, there's not a whole lot of information. We do know what his name means. His, main, his name means embrace or one who embraces. And I think that's going to become important as we study through the book. Um. Now, we will see a mention in uh, verse 6 of the Chaldeans, and that, that kind of gives us a kind of a time frame of what's going on. It's probably the late 7th century B.C., 620 maybe B.C., somewhere in there, that this is happening. And we can see that it is probably during the reign of Jehoiakim, the Jewish priest, the, the, or not priest, king, the king of Judah. And Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah. And if my timeline, if I have this right in my mind, it looks to me like Habakkuk was probably raised, he was probably born and a young man or young lad when Josiah was the king. So let's look back, before we get into Habakkuk, look back at Second Kings Chapter 22. I want to give you just a little bit of background of what was going on with these guys. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. And then at the age of 18, something amazing happened in his life. The same as something amazing has happened in probably most of your lives. But if you look at Second Kings chapter 22... In verse 10, what had happened was Josiah 
started rebuilding the temple, started cleaning up, started looking for things. And when they were in there in the temple, they found the book of the Lord. They found the law of God. It had been lost. Idolatry had, re- had ran rampant in the nation of Israel. And Josiah, they, they find this book of the law. They find the word of God. And in verse 10, the Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. This is the first time he's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's nation, and this is the first time he's going to hear the word of God. And look at what he, how he responds to it in verse 11. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Achaim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our father... Our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that it is written concerning us. Josiah had an encounter with the living God. How did it come? It came through his word. It came through his book, through the law. And how did he respond? He responded with repentance. I've been wrong, Lord, how unworthy I am. We have got to change. We have got to turn around. If you skip forward to chapter 23 in the same book, 2 Kings 23, look at verses 4 through 7. He says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron, Outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. In short, he began to restore order to the land. He brought back true worship. We could study more, but but in, in short, he brought back true worship of the one true God. He did it through the word of God. And he brought back his word, the reading of his word. He began to re- they began to read it out loud to the people so that they could hear the word of God. And he destroyed the idolatry from the land. He crushed it. He got all of it out. The little parts, the big parts, the priests who were burning incense to these fake gods. He got rid of all of that and he cleansed the land. So he destroyed the idolatry from the land. However... The thing that the king could not do, the thing that that Josiah could not do, was he could not destroy the idolatry 
from their hearts. But if you can picture this, they've been in idolatry, and with idolatry comes all manners of sin. With this turning away from God comes all manners of sin. So you know that they were surrounded by this iniquity. And when Josiah brings back the reading of the law, and people begin to turn back to God, I can just imagine this as some sort of a golden age of sorts, right? In Jerusalem, when you read about Josiah, I mean, he turned things back towards God, and God is going to honor that. God is going to bless that. And so it probably as Habakkuk grew up, he grew up in a, at least from everything you can see from the outside, a godly nation. Right? He was not surrounded by people blaspheming God's name all the time. And he wasn't surrounded by um, open public worship of idols and idolatry and all of the sacrifices. He mentioned Baal, the child sacrifices that went to, along with that. Habakkuk was raised in a time where God's, the true God's name was exalted. But then, Josiah, he got killed. He died in battle. And one of his sons was raised up, and his name was changed by Pharaoh to Jehoiakim. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about Jehoiakim. As with many of the kings that took control in Judah, um, I think it's in verse 37 of chapter 23, he says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And this brings us to our text in Habakkuk. This is the period of time that this is who's reigning when Habakkuk writes this book. So that's kind of the background. You can kind of picture um, what kind of prophet this is and, and what he has seen. He has seen the good. He has seen a nation who seemed at least to be moving towards God, and now he has seen the opposite of that. So as we look at verse 1, chapter 1, All, all we have is, like I said, there's not a lot about Habakkuk in the Scriptures, but we do have his name, which means embracer. And just to think about the name of Habakkuk, and I think this is where you start to kind of get to know the man a little bit. I, I thought about this, the embracer of God, and that's all it gives us. It doesn't give us his background. It doesn't give us his lineage. It doesn't give us his how he was raised, where he was raised, all the good things he had done. It doesn't give us any of that. All it gives us is that he was an embracer of God. It does not matter what he's done in his past. What matters here is that this man knew God and embraced him in his life. And isn't that the truth with us as well? Are you an embracer of God? Would one call you? Would one describe you as that? Or do you look back on your things? Do you look back on your actions, your good works, your church, your upbringing, your mom and dad? Your dad was a preacher. His dad was a preacher. I've heard it on the streets. Oh, yeah, my dad was a preacher. That means absolutely nothing to God. 
Because when you stand in front of God, you stand in front of Him alone. And are you an embracer of God as Habakkuk was? And we see here that he embraced this burden. He, he brings this burden to God. It says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And, and your, your Bible may say oracle here, but the Hebrew word is masa. And is used to, to describe a load carried by a donkey or in, in another place carried by people. It's a burden. It's, it's given us a picture here of a physical load burden that would be carried, although here it's not physical, but it's spiritual. And it's obvious that this burden that Habakkuk is carrying is weighing him down. And if you're an embracer of God, you have a burden. You have it now. If you have no burden for what's going on around you as Habakkuk does, you may need to reevaluate how much you embrace God, how much you embrace His Word. Because here's the truth of the matter. There's sin all around us. We're living in a time where I honestly think it's going to be very similar to what Habakkuk was living in. I don't know when the last time we had a leader who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I mean, really. When you get down to the bare bones of it, I don't know if we ever have had one. We don't know. We can read. We can all take sides and all that. But we don't really know their heart. But we know that it's been a steady decline since the beginning of our country, right? So we can, I think we can relate to Habakkuk here. And this burden that he has, it's over sin. And it's weighing him down. And, and the, the, prophet, the prophet, though, he saw it and embraced it. And that's what brings us to verse 2, the question that he asks, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? We can see what his burden is here and in the next few verses. But in short, it's the sin that surrounds him. Look at the next part. Even cry out to you violence. And you will not save. Now, I see a little bit of myself here and not the good part of Habakkuk. But I see, I see Habakkuk's flesh a little bit in this verse. Now, I don't doubt that he is, he is approaching God with a sincerity and righteous indignation of sin. And we can do that too. But do you see this, that he, it appears that as he approaches God... He already has an idea in his head on how God should be dealing with this. Can you imagine if you were in Habakkuk's place? I know if I was in Habakkuk's place, I would just be yearning for God to raise up another king like Josiah. Isn't that what you would want? You would want, okay, Jehoiakim's reign to end and, and raise up a king who's going to go back to the word of God, who's going to destroy the idolatry back out of our country, and we can live in that golden age again. That's what I want. Now, I feel like that's probably what Habakkuk won. He's like, You've, I've been crying out to you, God. Oh, God, here's all this sin. Oh, God, here it is. There's this violence and death and all these things, and you will not save. I tend to do that with even my small requests. Do you do that? 
when you go to God and you have a problem and you have the solution figured out, you just need God to go ahead and do it. Right? I do. I do it that way in my head, and I wouldn't say it that way. We're too, we're too proper to say it that way. But in your mind, you have this idea of how God's going to fix this. If you just do this, God, it'd be great. Oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. How dare we even think? How dare we even allow that to well up in us? And Habakkuk, he's going to get the answer. It's kind of like Job, when Job goes to God and he has these complaints. And God's answer was, were you there when I made all of this? Basically, he's saying, I am the creator. I am the all-powerful. I am the all-knowing. I got this, right? You worrying over nothing. I am in control. See, when Jehoiakim was brought into power, I think Randy taught on it Wednesday night on leaders and being put in, in their positions. We've heard it several times the last year or so. When Jehoiakim was put into power, God wasn't surprised. God put him there. God is the one that raised up raised Jehoiakim up as a leader. He was in control of that. And when Jehoiakim did what was not right in the sight of the Lord, that didn't take God by surprise. He wasn't like, oh no, what am I going to do? Okay, I've got to react to this and I'm going to raise up. A n-. No, it was all in his plan. And we're going to get that. I'm not going to get to it to today. Nate will get to it on what exactly, how exactly God is going to deal with this. And that's in verse 5 on. But what we're seeing here is we're seeing Habakkuk with a true burden. And he comes to God and you will not save. And look at what he says in verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time here. It's a great question. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Why is it that we have to see all this? We're God's people. He has pulled us out of our sin, caused us to be born again. He's granted us faith, and we now trust in the living God. And he leaves us here in the muck. Why does he do that? Habakkuk was tired of the sin around him. Is anybody tired of the sin around them? Is anybody tired of defending the fact that there's a male and female? Or that some things on TV are wrong? And you have to defend the fact that pornography is evil? I mean, it's, we're to that point. And no doubt he was tired of this godless king, Jehoiakim, leading the nation back into idolatry that his father had worked so hard to eradicate. Habakkuk was sick of it. And I can relate. I think we all can relate. Why, Lord? Why don't you move against this wickedness? Is anybody else tired of seeing the images of those unborn children? I'm sick of it. But God is still in control. But it is a godly thing to have that burden. 
It is a godly thing to have this righteous indignation against sin. But it is an ungodly thing to think that we have the answers and that God doesn't. And so that's how we need to approach God with our prayers. We need to approach Him that, God, teach me to be patient with you. Teach me what you're doing in this sinful world and how that you're going to get glory for yourself through these things. Why, Lord, haven't you moved against the wickedness? And so there's three things I want to bring out here in verse 3 on why God shows us this iniquity. And I'm talking about outside iniquity. He shows us iniquity in ourselves too. That's another day. That's another sermon for another day. But why does he allow us to see these God-awful things this godless nation is doing? Why does he allow his name to be blasphemed? Why does he allow the murder of innocent children? I say innocent. Why does he allow sex trade and pornography and prostitution and drunkenness and these, the, the terrible thing that is methamphetamines? Why does he allow it? Well, I'm going to show you three reasons. The first one is he lets us see what we might have been. Or he lets you see what you might have been. When you hear the foul language of your coworkers, and it, and it just kind of grates you, right? You hear this just terrible language coming out. You can, re, you can relate and say, but for the grace of God, that is me. And I can say that with all assurity, that but for the grace of God, I'm just as foul-mouthed as the worst you can find. I was before I was saved, and it's a reminder of what God has done, what he has brought me from, how he has moved me. You see a drunken party, or you hear about all the, the evils that go on. We hear about that every once in a while at school. They come back on Monday morning, and we hear all about what happened on Saturday night. And it's disheartening, it's discouraging, but yet I remember that was me. But for the grace of God, that would still be me. How about a terrible attitude towards authority? We see it all over our country. We see it all over our kids, our students. We see it everywhere, this, uh, this attitude of, I don't care who you are, and they have no respect for authority. And it doesn't matter if the authority is good or if the authority is bad. They have no respect for any authority, which also means they have no respect for God at all. But for the grace of God, that's me. People fighting over statues and past wars. What about racism? I see racism in our culture. I see it more now than I did 10 years ago. I see it both ways, and I can say with all assurity, had God not saved me, I would be as vile as those poor guys that are lost fighting down there in Charlottesville. I'd be there, but for God's grace. So that's the first reason, to let us see who we might 
have been or maybe who we were and how far he has brought us out of that. The second thing that he that he reason that he shows us this terrible iniquity is to teach us to admire his divine grace. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, We look at our neighbors and see them drinking down sin as a greedy ox drinks down water. And we say, What has made us to differ from them? What has made us different from our neighbors drinking down that sin? You don't have to go very far to find it. What makes us different? Spurgeon said, Grace. Free grace. That's it. Period. Nothing in us. Did you ever did, did you ever ask yourself why? Why me? Why am I saved? If you ask yourself that question and in any form of your thought turns to you, you're guilty of self-righteousness. If you ask yourself why me and it turns to your intellect or something good you did or something about the way you were brought up or something about the way you live now, then you are self-righteous and you need to repent. And if you can't repent of that, you're not saved. When you ask that question, your thoughts should turn to Christ and then to the Father and realize that you are saved for one reason, and that was because it was good in his sight. We don't know why. We don't know why he chooses to save some and others don't. But we know this. It was nothing within you. It was nothing within me. And that glorifies God. It is all about him. It is all about Christ. And so seeing this sin and iniquity around us reminds us of this amazing, sovereign grace which has been bestowed on us. A sovereign grace that is so powerful that it can save me. And to, it's such a blessing. I love the study we're doing on uh, taking God at His Word because it points back to the Word. And here I am in Habakkuk. This little book in the Old Testament and how it has spoken to my heart. How this question that he asks, why do you show me iniquity? How that has brought out so much about the truth of God and what he's doing in my life. What he's doing in your lives. It's incredible. This particular point is especially evident when one is saved out of a wretched household. Have you guys seen that? When you have a house, a family, and they are as wicked as you can find, and there's all kinds of manner, and it's that name. There's that name that carries with them. And no matter, I mean, you don't trust that name, whoever they are. You hear that name, and you think, hide your stuff. You hear that name, you think, keep your kids away from them. And then God goes into that family, and he pulls out one, and he saves them. And they start living righteously. That is incredible. It stands out. It gives God glory. To see a, a stalk of corn. A single one. Growing out amongst the weeds. 
You'll notice that corn. It will stand out. You'll go, wow, look at that stock of corn and all those tares and thistles. That's incredible. That's what it is when God saves. When he saves what about when he, when he saves a spouse, uh, saves a woman and her husband is still lost? It's glorifying to God. Now, and here's the thing. We have this great grace, this amazing sovereign grace, and we can pray and we can go to God that he would save the rest of the household through that one. And it happens. And sometimes it doesn't happen. And we don't know why, except that it's good in the sight of God. So God's grace is magnified in the life of a Christian. When they're among heathens. A Christian in that place will indeed stand out. Like a light in a dark cave. I've heard Ronnie talk about it. He he worked underground in a mine. And when it's dark underground. I've been in caves. they, They would show you what real darkness is. When it's dark, it's dark. I mean you can't see your hand in front of your face. And he tells a story about if somebody lights a match. Or turns on a flashlight. Nobody ever has to say, hey, look over there at that light. It is the immediate thing that everybody looks to. That light burning in the darkness. And that's what our call is. And that's why he leaves us in this muck. One of the greatest things, you've probably heard me say this before, but one of the greatest things about the gospel, one of the most amazing things, the whole thing is amazing, but one amazing point about the gospel is that God can take you a wretched sinner Save you, save your soul, regenerate your heart, leave you in a fleshly body, and leave you in this sinful world and keep you. That's incredible. That's a miracle. That can only be done by the living God. And the third reason, the third reason that we see iniquity, that God allows us to see all of this sin around us, and he doesn't just clean us up and put us in a place where we can live and only amongst each other and won't have to deal with it anymore, probably the most important one. And that is that we may realize the urgency of our present world and go to work in extending the kingdom of God. The sin around us, the sin around Habakkuk is our battle cry. It is the call to war that we should be hearing. Are you tired and weary of all this corruption? Are you tired and weary of the blaspheming of God? Are you tired and weary of racism, pornography, hatred? Preach the gospel. That is the solution. That's what Habakkuk is asking. He's asking this question, and the answer is ultimately going to be warn them. Warn them of the judgment that is to come. This nation is about to come under judgment. We're going to see in the next few, in the next time that God is going to use a wicked, a more wicked and perverse nation than them to bring judgment on them. He's going to bring in the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to destroy them. And this is right, just so you know, this is right before Nebuchadnezzar and all of that takes place. And we can see God's glory through all of that, through the captivity. And what he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what he did with Daniel. And how he preserved his people through all of that. And how he magnified himself. And, and, but Habakkuk's job was to go warn 
the nation. That's what the prophets did. Is that not our job? Is that not what all of this sin should drive us to? Should it drive us to disgust? Yes. Should it drive us? Should it put a burden on our back? I'm burdened for my family who's lost. I'm burdened for my friends who are lost. I'm burdened for this city who is corrupt. I'm burdened for this state who is corrupt, for this nation. What should I do? Preach the gospel. You take Christ You take the word of God and bring it before the nations. And everybody has a different way that they do that. But everybody is called to do that. Bring it before your families. Men with children. Women with children. Teach your children the word of God. You have unsaved siblings. Bring up conversations. Find ways. Think about it. When you're having a conversation, think about ways to bring up the Scriptures. Bring up the Word of God. And stand on it. Because like we heard this morning, it's sufficient. It is sufficient. It was su- The Word of God was sufficient enough to save my soul. It was sufficient enough, if you're a believer in Christ, to save your soul. And trust me, in its sufficiency to save the souls of those around us. How arrogant are we sometimes to think, God can save that person. And I know you've had those thoughts. I know that there's people that you've come across that think, oh, there's no way that guy, he, he's as bad as they get. Was he worse than Paul? Has he been murdering people on the streets? Has he been binding them and throwing them in prison? No. There's nobody that's untouchable by the Word of God. It is sufficient to save any soul. Preach it. Preach it to them. Bring it to your classmates, your co-workers, people on the street, anybody who will listen to you. Tell it to them. And then it says that the the last part of that verse, there is strife and contention arises. Does this not describe everything we see on the news? Does this not describe our country? And and I'll just say this as a disclaimer. I don't think everything's quite as bad as what the news would like us to believe. I mean, there is some truth to if you're visiting with your neighbors and talking with them and turning off the TV and Facebook once in a while, things aren't quite as bad as what they seem. That's just another lie from Satan. But we know that there's strife and contention. Obviously, there's strife and contention in Charlottesville right now. And that seems to be bleeding out to other places. And so people are either, from my experience last week, main conversations, people are either talking about the eclipse or they're talking about the riots in Charlottesville. But how, what a glorious opportunity when somebody wants to, right, we got it one more day. The eclipse is happening tomorrow. What a glorious opportunity when we start talking about the eclipse to bring up the one who made the eclipse, right? How awesome is the power of God to make this sight in the sky that has turned the world on its head right now, that everybody has to figure out some way to get some kind of glasses so they can watch it. And don't let your pets see it because... Might blind them. Did y'all see that? Wow. It's just crazy. I mean, it's really crazy. Where, where we are, 
as a people. But here it is. Here it is an opportunity. We're not going to worship that sun. We're not going to worship that moon as so many before us have done. We're going to worship the one who made that sun and made that moon. Let me tell you about him. This, what he's doing in the sky, this is nothing. That sun, which we take for granted and how glorious it is and how it causes this world to function and grow and all of that, it pales in comparison to the true glory of Christ. And so verse 4, Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The law is powerless. Did the law itself, the written law of God, become powerless? No. But see, the problem is the law, the written law of God is powerless. It is only as powerful as those who, are in, who it is entrusted to. So the law itself became powerless because those who were executing it were godless. So the law itself is good. It's given by God, right? And for a purpose. But if not enforced, if not followed, if not read, if not understood, then it cannot do what it was intended to do. And then he says this, justice never goes forth. Justice never goes forth. We are living in an age where justice rarely goes forth. You can go into the prisons. We've done a lot of prison ministry, and it doesn't take a real long time to figure out who's there and who's not there. The ones who are there are the ones who can't afford the high-dollar lawyers. The ones who aren't there are the ones that can has nothing to do with justice and who did right and who did wrong and who's paying for their crime. It's all about a political system and money. We're living in a land where rarely is justice served for murder. We're living in a land where rarely does somebody actually give their life when they take one. We're living in a land where babies are being murdered by the thousands And there is no punishment, zero punishment. It's glorified for those who are doing it. Justice does not go forth when the godless are in control of the law. And that's what we have. That's what we live in. That's what Habakkuk was dealing with. I feel his burden. Do you feel his burden? I feel it. Do you know a friend of Misty's went to law school? This was a long time ago, 15 years, probably 16 years ago. She went to law school, and I don't remember the exact story, but she, long story short, she had her, uh, she did a lot of work on this paper or something, and one of her classmates straight up plagiarized it and stole it from her. This is in law school, okay? She goes to the law professor pleads her case, and the law professor basically says, so? These are the people, this was 15 years ago, most of them are now in charge. 
right? These are the people who are supposed to be upholding the law, which is justice. But instead, it's like, nope, dog eat dog. Deal with it. I don't know. I don't know that she finished law school, did she? No, she couldn't. She couldn't deal with the injustice. That's our land, and that's probably one of the more uh, conservative law schools in the country. I mean, it's in Oklahoma. Can you imagine the West Coast? That's the land that we live in. Justice is rarely, justice is not going forth. And it says this, for the wicked surround the righteous. And I thought about this. When a society gets to a certain point in corruption, what does God do as, as he starts to judge that society? He gives them wicked leaders. And he surrounds them with wickedness. And the righteous become isolated. And they try to pull the righteous apart and isolate them. Like wolves hunting deer or wolves hunting buffalo. They've got to try to pick off and isolate people or animals so that they can... Well, that's what happens here as the wicked surrounds the righteous. And God starts bringing judgment into the land. He gives them wicked leaders. And when there's no objective justice based on the word of God any longer... The only thing that can follow that is perverse judgment. What is judgment based on today? It's like I said, what, what, who's in prison? The ones that didn't have money. So most of, most of your judgment in our court system is going to be based on the almighty dollar, right? Or what is in it for me? Who's going to pay off the lawyers? Who's going to pay off the judges? Who's going to pay off the politicians? It's perverse. It's not true. It's not righteous. It's not based on the word of God. That, make, that means it's perverse. And the more, the farther you get away from the word of God, just as Habakkuk was saying, the farther they got away from the reign of Josiah, the worse it got. The, the farther they got away from the word of God that Josiah held up and exalted, the worse it got. And so it is with us today. I mean... Are we not seeing in our culture today those who call good evil and evil good? I mean, it, our, our culture and our country and our laws and our just in general bias does not only allow sinful lifestyles but glorifies them at the exact same time in the same breath will slam and mock and taunt Godly things like prayer, modesty, and common sense. Common sense. It's not so common anymore. Let's just look at, uh, do you remember just recently the deal with Mike Pence? And I don't, I mean, I'm not into politics at all, but I remember this story. Mike Pence, I think he's the vice president, something like that. He He had a policy where he would not be alone in a room with another woman besides his wife. I have that policy myself. I thought it was wise. I thought it kept people from talking about possible slander of things that were going on. I thought it was proper and honoring to my wife by doing that, that I would not put myself into that situation. I would not put this other lady into that situation. And I would not allow the people around to make up all kinds of things about it. He was absolutely slammed. For that. 
It's a good policy. It's a good thing. And they made it look like he was evil. There's, we could go through example after example after example of this. But that one just stood out to me. But yet, all the same time, you can... All kinds of manner of immorality and homosexuality and transgender and all of that is being glorified. So what are we to do with all of this? I mean, we know. I'm not telling you anything we don't know about our culture being corrupt and the sin being surrounding us. I, I, I feel like probably we bear this burden together. I feel like we bear the burden that Habakkuk had, like, why, God, why are you tarrying? And I, I can surely, each day, as these things, as I see them and I look around, I can certainly relate with John when he said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I yearn for that day. I long to see it. But he hasn't yet. And so we have something that we should do. So we go back to the three reasons why God shows us this iniquity. And let us remember. And let us dwell on. Let's, let's, let us meditate. Who we could have been. And give thanks to God. That he saved us. And worship him. And let's admire that divine grace. That he has bestowed on us. And because of that. Let's worship him. And let's realize this urgency. That we have of judgment coming. And the truth is as perverse as it is. And if we can remember that that but for the grace of God so went I. If we can keep that in our minds then we won't have as much anger towards the people. But we'll have compassion towards them. And we'll want to share with them the part, the thing, the God who saved us. And that, they, that we could see them saved. And we'll go complain, proclaim this gracious God to this lost and dying world. We'll see in the upcoming verses that God is not slack concerning judgment. His time is not our time. He's not in our time. His ways are not our ways. And he will have justice. And it will be right justice. It's coming. It was coming to Israel in this time of Habakkuk. And it came not too long after this. And it is coming here. And so our plea, our, our battle cry, the sinful things that you see, when you see sinful things and you get disgusted, or you see sinful things and you get tempted, or you see sinful things and whatever it is, let that be, when you see it tomorrow, let that be a thought in your head, I have got to tell somebody, I've got to warn somebody that this sinful life that we're seeing, this sinful culture that we're seeing is, a, is, a, is bringing the judgment of God. Let's proclaim it to this lost and dying world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for faithful men so long ago who stood true to your word, and we know that was by your power. I thank you, I thank you that you raised up Habakkuk. And that you gave us this particular passage of scripture to study and learn and to see that you have always, throughout time, you, you've always dealt with sin. I pray, God, that you would help us 
to believe. Help us to realize. Help us to understand and help us to accept the way that you deal with sin. Give us a glimpse of your righteousness. Give us a glimpse of your glory. God, thank you. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for pulling me out of that. God, I pray, Lord, that I would have compassion on those who are still in it and that I would have the faith and boldness to proclaim it to them. God, I pray for, I just I just thank you for this church. I pray, God, that if there's any here who are still living in that, that you would get a hold of them. Get their attention, Lord, and bring them out. And God, I, I just thank you for each one, and I pray that you would give us conviction that when, when we go forward and when we leave this place, we would have a we would have that burden, that burden that Habakkuk had, and we would have it for the lost souls who are living amongst us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.